Good morning again. We are continuing our series in the life of Abraham uh, in Genesis. And so we've been in the middle of a, and we still are in the middle of, a, a long sequence that starts at the beginning of chapter 17 and goes through the end of chapter 19. God has met with Abraham, reminded him of the promises of the covenant, given, the, given him the sign of the covenant, talked about the promised son of the covenant, Isaac, and we thought a lot about that last week. And we pick up really at the end of that meal that God had shared with Abraham in chapter 18, starting in verse 16. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I've chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, because of the outcry, or because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the cry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked? Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city... I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are there. He answered, For the sake of forty I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, God has given us this word that we can learn from it, that we can be strengthened, refreshed, resting in him and in his character. So let's pray that he'd speak to us. Father, we thank you that you speak to us by your word, that you have not left us to wander. You have not left us to wonder. You have not left us to our own thoughts and our own devices, but you have made clear who you are. 
and you have made it clear how we can know you. So we pray that you would speak to us this morning through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm currently in the middle of a debacle trying to get our fireplace fixed. It's a gas fireplace. We realized a while back that there was something wrong with it. I found a company that was really highly rated, and they did a great job coming to figure out what was wrong with it. And when they ordered the valve that they needed to, they called me back. And three times in one week, I got stood up by the, uh, the, the maintenance guy that was supposed to come out and get it. I've been trying to call their office. I get one guy. He tells me he's going to put me, he's going to tell this other person to call me to set up another thing. I never hear from them. I call this guy back. It goes on and on. It's been going on for a couple weeks now. So uh, it is a parable for how we think of talking with God. I think most of us feel frustrated. I mean, if you're, if you're not a Christian or you're kind of on the fence, struggling with doubts, maybe you're not even sure God's there. Uh, many who are Christians, of course, simply struggle to do it. We think it feels like I'm just talking and no one's answering. No one that I know that's a Christian actually thinks that they pray enough, myself included. And even when we've tasted the sweetness of a time in prayer with God where we feel close, it still often feels so elusive, doesn't it? Prayer is this thing that is supposed to be at the heart of what we do. The poet George Herbert calls it the church's banquet. It's supposed to be at the heart of what we're called to be and do. And yet it is so difficult for us to actually about. So I want to encourage you this morning from this passage, because this is a passage about talking with God. You see, in prayer, we are invited by God to engage Him and to be changed. We're invited, we're engaged, and we're changed. The invitation is clear enough. Uh, At the end of this meal, with these three people that have showed up, God obviously being among them uh, in some form or other that we don't know any more about, but he is there. uh, They get up and they start on their way and Abraham is sort of seeing them, you know, through this first leg. They're in the mountains or kind of high hills of of, uh, the southern part of Israel. And that borders on the valley that goes down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, the Jordan River Valley and the valley around the Dead Sea. And so Abraham is walking with them for the first part of this leg till they start to go down the mountain. And so they're talking along the way, and God is obviously knows that Abraham is there. He's obviously listening in. And he speaks uh, to his angels, as it were, but asks a question, right? And whenever God asks a question, it's a pretty good and theologically accurate thing to say that God's not looking for an answer, as if God needs more information. God asks questions usually as an invitation to those who hear him. You think about the Garden of Eden. God asked Adam, where are you? 
He doesn't need information about Adam's location. (laughs) He's inviting Adam to stand before him. It's like this over and over and over again in the Bible, and this is no different, right? Shall we hide from Abraham what we're about to do? He's inviting Abraham to engage him. And in fact, we know he's not looking for an answer because he simply answers his own question. Right on the heels of it, right? He, he identifies, like, Abraham has a special status. I've called him. I've chosen him. Verse 19. Right? He will be a great and mighty nation who will bless all the other nations. That's hearkening back to Abraham's call in chapter 12. God is answering his own question. It's important that Abraham know all this because he and his descendants are to keep the way of the Lord. In other words, what's about to happen at Sodom and Gomorrah, and we, that's next week's sermon, <laughs> what's about to happen there is instructive for them in keeping the way of the Lord. God is inviting Abraham to engage him. There's a great outcry of injustice. We'll talk more about that next week. But notice this, Abraham doesn't dispute the fact that Sodom might deserve judgment. That never comes up, that there might be a lot of wickedness there. That's been established from the first mention of Sodom in chapter 13. But there's an invitation for Abraham to engage God. And that is what God does all throughout the Bible, is invite us to come to him. Over and over and over and over and over and over again, God invites us to come to him. It's a hallmark of who God is because the one true living God, the God of the Bible, is a personal God. He is not an abstract force out there. He is not the universe sort of vaguely defined. He is a personal God, which means that he is communicative. This is the thing about communication, right? Uh, Nobody says of their marriage, boy, we're not really communicating well, but everything's fine. No one ever says that. Because communication's at the heart of what it's supposed to be to have a relationship, right? And I don't just mean words. Some people say a lot of words and say almost nothing somehow in the same, and you know, they reveal nothing of who they are. They engage nothing of who you are. It's not just the words, but it is communication that's really at the heart of who we are. It, it's what, it really is what a relationship is for, right? Is knowing and enjoying somebody else. That's what God actually wants. See, an impersonal God, in almost all religion, and oftentimes even Christianity is distorted into this, but all, all religions that are impersonal pr- treat prayer as if it's a kind of input-output. If you come to God and you ask for this, and you show this kind of honor, then something should come out of it. It's a mechanical process. Right? You feed this machine your quarters, 
And you're supposed to get a Coke out of the machine, right? This is, this is kind of how prayer is approached, which is why prayer so often tends to get distorted into a work of merit, a thing you do to earn God's favor. And that is a fundamental misunderstanding because that is the way an impersonal God works, is you show up and earn it, and then he'll give you what you want. God wants... The real God wants none of that because the real God is personal, and he's been personal from eternity past, right? He's the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. In other words, whoever, whatever exactly God is, the Spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable, we can say some things about it, before he created anything was personal. That's why we can say that God is love without any qualification, because God has always been in that relationship. And when he creates us, that is what he created us for, is to relate to him that way, to be personal, to be communicative with him. Now, that, that is, makes it clear also why we don't always get our way when we pray. If you're mad that you don't get your way when you pray, it's because you don't have a personal God. You think, I show up, I do the thing, and then I'm supposed to get what I asked for. But that is not how a relationship works. Not a real relationship anyway. In a real relationship, you can talk about what you need, but you also come to be, to have a back and forth. Perhaps to have your perspective changed. Indeed, when we think about God feeling absent sometimes in prayer, this is precisely the point. Anthony Bloom in his little book, Beginning to Pray, puts it this way. He says, if we look at the relationship in terms of a mutual relationship, you will see that God could complain about us a great deal more than we can complain about him. We're the ones who are often ghosting him. So we're called into prayer as a way of communicating back and forth with God. Prayer is essential for that. In other words, then, it is also about learning his priorities. It's an invitation to see the world a different way. That's why the Lord's Prayer is so important and has been so important in church history, right? Because it's when Jesus taught us God's priorities. Think about it when you're when you're teaching somebody to cook, and especially if you're, if you're cooking with, uh, with a child who's doing this for the first time, right? There's all these little subtasks, even if you're just making pancakes, right? There's all these little subtasks that are part of it. And what you figure out along the way, as you learn, right, is like, what things do you have to be absolutely precise on, and what things can you kind of, you know, that's good enough, you know, that's... <laughs> There's no, you know, there's no way to get precise about how lumpy the pancake batter ought to be, you know. But when you're first learning as a child and you read about that one step or you hear about that one step or your parent tells you to do that one step, you get obsessed on the smallest thing, right? And you, they, you have to be trained like, well, okay, that's fine the way it is. Remember what we're trying to do is do that, you know, is to actually get this together and get it on the griddle and be able to eat without spending three hours making pancakes. So there's, you know, there's priorities you have to learn along the way. 
It is that way when we come to pray. We come to pray in order to have our priorities clarified, to see what it is that God wants, the things that He cares about. Not merely to talk about what we like or what we want. It's not that God is disinterested in those things. Like a parent with their child. But it also is the case that we sometimes need to learn to see things differently. This is why things like praise and confession and thanksgiving are so often kind of afterthoughts for many of us in our prayer. Because we're not that interested in the things that God actually says he's interested in. We have our list. And maybe one of the reasons we struggle to pray is because we've not come to actually understand God and his priorities. So God invites us, and then he engages us. God's always inviting us, but he invites so that we actually get into the back and forth. This is what I see in listening to him. And notice this is exactly what Abraham does. He waits till the, the two angels, we discover there are two angels at the beginning of chapter 19, but uh, the two angels go down to Sodom and he waits and he's there alone with the Lord. And he starts in, chapter, in verse 23, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? He's talking to God. He acknowledges him as the judge of all the earth, right? But but you get what he's saying, though. What he picks up on is God's character. And he goes back to God about his character. (laughs) He says, look, you're the judge of the earth. You say you're right and righteous and just. So are you going to destroy that city if there's righteous people there? Are you, going, are you just going to wipe out some of the righteous? Treat them the same as the wicked? That's not the character you're telling me that you have. That's what he comes with. He comes to God on the basis of who God's character is. Now, it's interesting. He obviously is concerned about Lot, his nephew, who lives there. Uh, we've heard about Lot, if you've been going through this series. <laughs> I mean, Abraham has literally gotten into battles with people over Lot, his nephew. He's obviously concerned about Lot, but the thing that he approaches God with is not, first and foremost, his own interests, but God's character. That's a significant difference. It is not that his interest in Lot is unimportant, but the thing that's most important is who God is, who he's actually engaged with. And then he gets into that long chain, right, of, you know, what if, what if there's 50? What if there's 45? What if there's 40, 30, 20, 10? He keeps going down, 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 and God continues to say, even for that, I won't destroy it. Now, a lot of people are puzzled over why he stops at 10. I don't know if that stuck out to you. 
I'm not sure I totally know the answer. I mean, one possibility is that Abraham has kind of given up and said, well, if you can't even find 10, I don't know. It may not be worth it. Another option is that perhaps Lot's household, his immediate household, uh, will, there are six of them uh, that are, we know of in the next chapter, and they would have a couple of the close servants that would count as a household, would have outnumbered 10. So maybe Abraham has realized he's dipped below the threshold of even Lot's household. And let me tell you, Lot is not a righteous man. We will learn more about that next week. Maybe Abraham has realized he's kind of dipped below even Lot's household. I'm not really sure exactly why. I don't think there's a definitive answer. But at some point, Abraham says, well, God will have to decide. Right? And we don't really know, actually, whether he, whether he thinks that there are ten or not. Because God doesn't tell him what the what the answer is. In fact, he said, you know, we're, I'm going to go see, right? He's sending his angels down there to do a recon mission. Uh, but as it were, it is more of a test. <laughs> and uh, so he sends, he's sending his angels down there. Whatever the case is, though, it's so important to see this, that Abraham's basis of engaging God is God's character, first and foremost. And I think it is, the, it is missing that point that often betrays some of our biggest dysfunctions in prayer. One of our dysfunctions is believing that God isn't listening. Uh, there's a kind of fatalism that many of us buy into. That God's going to do what he wants to do. And whatever I say isn't really going to make a big impact. Fatalism was, uh, was very popular throughout the ancient world uh, at various times and in various ways. In Christian history, it has cropped up over and over again. Even in our Reformed camps, because we emphasize God's sovereignty, because we emphasize things like predestination as important, that some people essentially have a fatalistic view of God, but that is missing, of course, that God is personal. God's interest in what is going on is not abstract. It is not indifferent. But in fact, he's big enough to control everything that's going on, taking into account who we are and engaging us along the way. God's sovereignty is not just mechanical. It is actually bigger than that. He wants us to engage him, and that is also part of how he rules and governs the world. So fatalism is one of the problems, and that keeps us often from praying, or you know, praying very often. Another problem, and this is harder to identify, but it's certainly one, is that we just vent at God. This is a little dicier. It is giving God the full brunt of our feelings. Now, I'm not saying God's scared of your feelings. Uh, this is the person who has taken seriously that the Psalms give voice to this wide range of our emotions that are some, sometimes seem borderline heretical, right? Uh, they've heard that. They've heard others, maybe me, say that, you can, that God is not scared of your feelings, and he's not. 
However, it is not a personal engagement because we are not listening to God. We are not coming to God with His character in view. Do you understand what I mean by this? I, I've seen this plenty of times where someone will say, I am talking to God. I keep telling Him about all the things I'm upset about. Fair enough. But are you listening? Are you paying attention to who He is? Is there any, you know, in terms of a conversation, is there any air in the conversation for God to speak, for you to hear what he's saying? Are we just venting at him? Or are we engaging him as a personal God? See, God in prayer is not simply reacting but he is communicatively responding to who we are. There's a, there's a great little quote, but it's dense, from a theologian named Kevin Van Hooser. This is what he says. He says, prayer is a microcosm of the human creature's entire relationship to God and the means by which the kingdom of God advances. And as such, it is a key component to God's drama. Those who refuse to hearken to the divine voice or enter into the communicative relationship with God forfeit the privilege of being of communicative agency, thereby consigning themselves to the role of God's instruments rather than communicants. There's a whole lot going on in that passage. But hear what he's saying, right? He's saying, look, the point is that God didn't, isn't just calling us to prayer so he can react and respond to what we are asking for. Rather, he wants it to be a place where we're actually communicating with him, engaging with him, where we're being changed. And he, the thing is, the more that we pull ourselves back from communicating, the more we actually make it true that we are just instruments in the rather than, you know, engage characters in, the God, in God's drama, right? We become set pieces to be moved around when we refuse to talk with him, rather than the real characters in his drama, the quieter that we are. And we have lots of voices in our lives. There's modern versions of fatalism, science, you know, science, which I have no beef with science, but there's, there's always been a kind of school of thought within the philosophy of science that is just sort of looking for some deterministic model. This has been true for the last century and a half at least, right? It was physics for a while, and of course now with quantum physics, we basically know that we don't know how anything works, I think is basically what they're telling. That what we describe is just a thin slice of existence. And in fact, there is indeterminacy built into the very fabric of the universe. Again, somebody else can probably explain quantum mechanics much better than I can, but it was genetics then for a while. But the more that we actually learned about the human genome, the more it became clear that it is not merely a deterministic template, right? But it is set in motion by what 
our parents and their parents have experienced, what we experience personally, that, that there is a, so much more that goes into it. Now it's neuroscience is kind of one of the big determinisms of our day as if, as if we just get the brain figured out that just everything will be simple and fall into place. You don't have to be that high-minded to be a fatalist. A lot of received wisdom is fatalistic, isn't it? Can't teach an old dog new tricks. And of course, it's not that there isn't some wisdom in received wisdom. <laughs> it's not that there isn't wisdom in, to be found in science. But whenever they close the door on God's action, we're dealing in fatalism. But as we talked about last week, is anything too wonderful for God? God always has other options. We are told we should vent. Of course, these are, there are lots of voices in our lives telling us this sort of pseudo-psychology built on the vocabulary of therapy, right, about how we need, you know, using a lot of terms like repression, your sense of self, and what you're being told is that you just need to voice your opinion at other people. And I mean at other people. Of course, any therapist worth their salt will tell you the more you feed anger, the more angry you become. The more you feed fear, the more you feed sorrow like that, the deeper into the hole you get. And it isn't to say that we should be dishonest with God. Hear Don't hear what I'm not saying. <laughs> but that we also come to get a different perspective to see the world rightly. And that may, like seeing the world rightly may absolutely involve lament. It may absolutely involve recognizing injustice. It may absolutely involve acknowledging this or that wrong done by others against you. Absolutely. But that is not the end of it. And when that's the only voice in the room, we're led astray. And so, God's voice is what we need. We need the clarity of his grace. We need the assurance of his goodness. We need the definitive answer that he gives in Jesus Christ about the sin and chaos of this world. So when we engage with God, we start to listen, and that is what finally changes us. Think about this story. What changes in this story? Does the outcome for Sodom change? No. It doesn't. Lot is delivered. Spoiler alert for next week, but Lot is delivered, but not because he's righteous. The thing that changes is Abraham. What changes in this story is Abraham's heart. What Abraham learns is God's righteousness and justice. What Abraham learns is God's personal and patient attention to him. 
What Abraham learns is God's covenantal care over him. See, the hallmark of real prayer, the hallmark of good prayer, is that I am changed more than my circumstances. That isn't to say God's indifferent to the circumstances and the questions of the situations of what's going on in your life. But the hallmark of real prayer is that you will be changed more than your circumstances. A real encounter with God changes us first and foremost. God has options for the situation. And he will do things often that we don't expect. He will bring them about in his own time. He will do them perhaps in a very different way than we thought. But God wants to change you in prayer. God means to meet you. See, he is big enough and powerful enough to work out all the circumstances. What he wants is your heart. He wants you to engage with him. He wants you to be changed. Prayer is the thing that makes us, or I should say brings us into communion with God. It's not the only thing. There is his word. There are the sacraments. There are other things. But it is an essential piece of it. And it's not until we start to understand that actually the whole point of prayer or at least the primary point of prayer is that I be changed, then we can really start to understand why prayer is so important. That's the context in which uh, Tim Keller puts together a pretty comprehensive explanation. He says, prayer is the only entryway into genuine self-knowledge. It's also the main way we experience deep change, the reordering of our loves. Prayer is how God gives us so many of the unimaginable things he has for us. Indeed, prayer makes it safe for God to give us many of the things we most desire. It is the way we know God, the way we finally treat God as God. Prayer is simply the key to everything we need to do and be in life. God wants your heart. And you know what the proof of all that is? It's really pretty simple. It's the person that we know prayed the most. Jesus himself. He's a person of prayer. If you take the time, we noted this when we did the series in Mark, but if you take the time to read through the Gospels, if you can read through it in one sitting or in you know, just a couple of longer reading sessions, you'll notice all throughout, there's these comments made that Jesus was praying or Jesus was seeking a place to pray, that Jesus is praying all the time, all the time. And we don't often hear what he's praying, but he's constantly seeking to pray. But we do hear some of it. Uh, We get the Lord's Prayer, but that's really him teaching us. We get a number of occasions where we get short prayers where he's thanking God that he's revealed himself to us. There's John 17, which is the longest prayer we have of Jesus, where he's praying for the church. And then, of course, in Gethsemane and on the cross, Jesus prays a number of times. And I go through all that to make this point, that Jesus' prayers are about us and our salvation. They are for us, that we would know God, and that we would be redeemed by his work. That's the thing 
that we see Jesus coming back to over and over and over again in prayer is our salvation. That's why he came. That's why prayer was just as essential for Jesus as it is for us. Because communion with the Father is no less important for the Son than it is for us. And Jesus lays this out in his own practice, and his own practice is to pray for us. And look, God listened to Abraham because he was counted righteous by his faith. God listens to Jesus because he is righteous altogether. The Father listens to the Son because the Son and the Father have no difference of will. What the Son wants, the Father wants. And he has done everything to fulfill the very things that he prayed for. To bring you and I to him. Abraham could have prayed for one righteous person and it would not have mattered. But the one righteous person gave his life for us. You see, this is the whole point. We pray in and with and through Jesus. Because he is the one who brings us to God. We come with confidence because of his righteousness, not ours. We come knowing we are God's children, not because we deserve it, but because Jesus has made it so. We come with confidence that he is always there, speaking to the Father, that he is wrapped up in a communication that has been there since the very beginning since before there was a beginning. (laughs) And that they are talking about their desire that we be redeemed, that we be changed. And they send the Spirit to bring us into their presence, to pray for us because we don't know how to pray. To bring us even into the very life of the Trinity into the communicative love of the Father, Son, and Spirit. God brings us into that. And so, the power of the Spirit makes it clear that we also pray in weakness. Do you you understand how those two things are connected? We pray in our own weakness knowing we come with nothing, but with power because the Spirit is at work. Because Jesus has fulfilled everything that we need. So when you go into the Lord in prayer, you should expect to be changed. And I'm not saying it's always an epiphany. In fact, I think most often we learn by the daily weakness of going to the Lord in prayer, not on our own merits, but on the merit of Christ and the power of the Spirit. That's what God wants to engage you with. He wants to engage your heart. So will you pray? Father, we come with confidence to you, not because what we have done deserves anything, not because we are righteous, but because Jesus is. 
because Jesus has accomplished all that you wanted. And because you have sent the Spirit, I want to pray that you would teach us to pray, to be engaged with you, that you would change our hearts, to see ourselves, to see the world in a different way. Lord, you know all the ways in which we struggle better than we do in our prayers. But you also have given us everything we need to meet you. So even as we come to the sacrament, one of the other ways you have given us to meet you, would you send that spirit to be at work? We ask in Christ's name. Amen.